Welcome to Behavioural Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioural science and how it is made. I'm Yitzhak Rasuli and I'm a PhD student in economics at Oxford University. And today I'm going to be speaking to Ariel Rubenstein, a professor of economics at Tel Aviv University, also a professor at NYU, and um, perhaps most importantly, a long-standing faculty member at the International University of Cafes. Now, today we're going to be discussing Ariel's paper, which he co-authored with uh, Michele Piccione, Equilibrium in the Jungle. And in case you're wondering what's happened to the behavioral science, because there's meant to be a behavioral science podcast, don't worry, because we're also going to be talking to Ariel about his uh, views on behavioral economics and on the state of the discipline more generally. So Ariel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for the introduction. It's the best introduction that I've ever received to be introduced as a professor in the University of Cafés. Thanks. So I'd like to start by discussing your, the content of your paper. So in the paper, you write about the, what you call the jungle and you distinguish that from a market. So perhaps you could tell our listeners who haven't read the paper, what exactly do you mean by a jungle? Okay, so a jungle is a model, a model where the, which is in some sense, uh, it was built to be analogous in some sense to the model of the market. It's a model which shares with the market several key components by purpose, of course, but as one very important distinction. So the common, or let's say, let's take the, the most the simple version of the jungle will be a situation where there are uh, N individuals and there are N houses, and uh, each of the individuals can occupy only exactly one house, and no house can be occupied by two individuals. And the individuals have different uh, interests in the houses. Of course, if uh, each individual favorite house is distinct, then there is no uh, need to any social institutions. But of course, as often the case, there are some conflicts of interest between the individuals. And the question is, what will be a sort of a stable situation? And the question also is, what are the information that we put beside the preferences of the individuals on the answers uh, in order to explain or to, to be included in the model. Let's recall that in the standard market models, like in the standard housing uh, market model, the, the additional information is the initial endowment. Houses come with an owner. I own A, you own B, she owns C, and so on. And there is some exchange, and the exchange determines the final outcome. Parallel to the endowment uh, in the standard market models, what we included in the model is power relation. Power relation, agent I is stronger than agent J, means that agent I can come to agent J, J say hi, recall that I'm stronger than you, I want to occupy your house, agent J retreats withdraws from the house and agent I takes the house. So the power relation between the agents is the is the, the main additional component or which uh, replace substitutes the ownership in the standard market models. I see. And what happens in the jungle? You mentioned there's some sort of stable allocation. Maybe yeah, you can so the, every model, uh, uh, we are talking about models in the tradition of the equilibrium, let's say, approach, let's say. So we are looking for some concept of equilibrium. Equilibrium, namely, it's a situation which is stable against the operation, the forces which are operating in the, the situation that we, we model. The stability, in uh, we define stability or equilibrium in such a model as an assignment or as a location of the houses such that there is no agent I who is stronger than agent J that uh, envies agent uh, J. So there are, of course, there are possibilities that I envies J, but he, he is weaker than J and he is not able to take the house of J in, uh, from J. 
So suppose you have some houses, maybe you could tell us a bit about what's the kind of the pattern in which the houses end up in the sense that, you know, you mentioned this algorithm in this paper, which kind of constructs the allocation. So how does that work? The algorithm is not, a, it's not a pattern that we assume in the model that it exists. It is just a, it's just a simple way to prove a not very deep, not very complicated proposition that in such a model in this particular version with the houses in the model, we cover a bit different type of uh, situations but in in this uh, version of the, the jungle model uh, so to prove that uh, what can you do with such a model the first thing that you can do and that's actually part of the idea of the model of the paper is to 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 take the steps which are analogous to the steps that st traditionally we do when we teach or study the concept of uh, competitive equilibrium. So what do we do with competitive equilibrium? The first thing we do is uh, prove existence. We have an existence here, and existence here is uh, proved uh, quite easily in this particular example by saying, okay, let's order the agents, the individuals by their power. The first guy, that's what it's called successive dictatorship uh, algorithm. So you, you the, the strongest guy uh, picks his best uh, uh, first, then the second strongest guy is called to the scene and he picks the, the best for him from what is remains after the first guy took whatever he took and so on. So this algorithm, uh, we don't assume that it exists, but it is just a sort of a, a way to prove that equilibrium in this model exists. Later, what we do is that after the existence, we prove in this particular version, there is uniqueness. That's a very good property for uh, for economists because once we have uniqueness and we can do, of course, comparative statics exercises very easily. So uh, there are some other propositions that we prove, but the point of the paper is uh, actually there is an interesting feature of this paper that I'm sure that you noted, which is at the end of the paper, there are two conclusion sections, if you want. Uh, one is written by my colleague, by Michele, and one by me, and uh, it's quite non-standard. Uh, the papers include debate or disagreement between authors. For me, it was extremely important to demonstrate and to, and I'm very happy that the editor agrees to some to such non-orthodox uh, uh, section in a published paper. But it was very important for me to demonstrate, to, to emphasize that we don't have to agree about interpretation of what we do. We a disagreement is a good thing. In a previous book with Martin Osborne on game theory, we did also the same thing, namely that whenever, in many cases, when we disagreed about interpretation, about, uh, about the importance of a concept uh, in game theory, we, we wrote MJ all says and they all says and we disagree. I'm not shy and not ashamed opposite. I'm proud about the fact that we disagree and we bring the, the positions to the reader and from my point of view, he can, can conclude whatever he wants. So the two different approaches between, uh, of course, each of us has something also agree with something, something of the ingredient of the other, but Michele emphasizes that's a model of jungle and that's emphasizes that in one of the things that is not completely, it's not that it never has appeared in economic models, but one minus epsilon of the economic models talk about a voluntary exchange and power relations, power force are not included explicitly in the model. So one possibility is to think about the model really as a sort of a very simple, very abstract model of interaction between individuals where power plays important or force plays important role. 
the other possibility is to take the paper not so literally, not so important as a model which describe a society where power is the leading force, but as a sort of uh, argument within the discourse in economics. And this was more my position. I wanted to say the following. Listen, student or scholar of economics, there is a standard way to talk about competitive equilibrium. And there is a standard way that we would uh, teach a non-economist the, the foundations of economics. And here is an analogous way to teach something which I'm not sure that you will so happily uh, accept as acceptable mechanism for the society. Actually, beside the, the paper, there is uh, some uh, reworking of the paper or way of introducing of the paper in a book which I published, which is called Economic Fables. This chapter was based on many lectures that I gave. Uh, some of them were public lectures on the jungle equilibrium. What I was used to do when I was giving those uh, public lectures, I would present some dual way, I would present two introduction to economics lectures. One of them is the introduction to the economics of the market, and one of them was introduction to the economics of the jungle. And I, and rhetorically, this was of course a rhetorical exercise, I wanted to say, here is the jungle, here is the standard market introduction to economics. I can construct something which sounds quite similar, of course different, but quite similar, and which we praise the motives which motivate people in the jungle, and uh, we'll praise them on the same ground, namely, for example, uh, say bring order in a place where there is a risk of disorder, namely there is equilibrium, and second, the outcome is good, and good in the sense of the welfare theorem, namely that the outcome is pretty efficient, and uh, of course it's, it sounds almost the same, but it's different, and uh, regarding the second uh, system, the jungle, of course the use of the word jungle, the use of the word the power and force, triggers uh, us to, to doubt about ethically about the advantages of the system, whereas it's less so, at least among most of the students, I believe, in, of economics, when we teach economics of competitive equilibrium, with com the competitive equilibrium concept. So the goal was really to, in this respect, I wouldn't say politically, uh, by the way, this is the paper, the only, there are two papers of mine in all my, my career that I would say, to be honest, there was some political aspect it motivates me in the in the paper not very strong but uh, there was something but uh, but the, the more important uh, motivation was within the profession to demonstrate something which sounds analogous and different and it challenges therefore the the, the reader or the student or the listener to have to have the pull to something that he might actually he or she might actually think about it without me and without us but in any case i think that that's probably encourages the listener or the reader to think about namely whether the, the evaluation, the ethical evaluation of the method and not taking the fundamental welfare theorem so easily as a truth. I want to talk now about the kind of story behind the paper. So how did you end up writing the paper and sort of how did the idea come about and, and so on? Well, first let me say that at this stage of life I do ask myself sometimes what are my better papers? Some of my papers are not good <laughs> and uh, some of the papers I'm uh, more happy with. And let me say that this is one, if I have to construct a short list of papers that I like, which I was involved with, this is certainly one of them. Let me just say that actually some of the latest papers, for example, uh, some several papers, one uh, with uh, my uh, my friend and co 
co-author, another English professor at the moment, Michael Richter, is also one of the papers that I would put in this list. It's somewhat, there is something connected. In some sense, the jungle model and the, the work with Michael Richter is there is something joint to this paper. They are very, very different. The models are completely different, but there is some debate. The, the joint idea is that these are papers where the apparatus that bring harmony to the society is not through prices and it's not through equilibrium a la Nash equilibrium or not game theory. There is no game theory in these models and uh, in some sense they are, they are more in the tradition of general equilibrium but they are very different than general equilibrium in the jungle model because actually the primitive is very different, different in the work with uh, Michael Richter then it's more apparatus or the something that is formed in the society and brings the order is different than a set of prices. The two papers, both the jungle and the, the one with the Michael Richter, are not papers that were accepted very easily. I mean, we, it was not, uh, it was quite a long process. Uh, we got many rejections, which we did not like, and I think we were completely wrong for reasons which I think uh, mainly because of some conservatism in the profession. And, but nevertheless, I don't have any doubt that the jungle paper is, is at least for me, I'm not saying one of the best papers in the world, of course, but at least I think that it's much better paper than papers that got accepted to econometrical. Well, as you said yourself, I think, uh, you know, if a paper hasn't been rejected, then, then it shouldn't have been published. That's true, but I didn't, yeah, but today, let me just comment about it. It does not mean that every paper that, that is rejected has to be published, number one. Number two, you know, in spite of my statement, I, I must say that when a paper is rejected five, six times, then I start to... And what was the, Kamaz, what was the gist of the objections? I don't know, it's many years ago, I don't remember exactly, but, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's comments about uh, realism, uh, comments about the economic implications. Uh, this is the standard objections usually in the profession to abstract papers uh, which are conceptual. And this is actually what I do in economics. And the only thing that I'm doing in economics is that I'm uh, dealing with the conceptual issues of uh, economic theory. So um, you asked me a different question, which was about the process. Yeah, so our idea is coming, I don't know. It was uh, partially probably bought in my mind. The very basic idea probably came to my mind because of my general uh, skepticism about economic uh, theory in general and about the ways that we teach in economics in particular. So uh, how exactly, the, let's say, the, the, the basic idea of the, of the, the model came, I, I really don't recall. But of course, the development of the paper was a joint project with uh, Michele and the entire project is a joint So I, I guess that we were used to sit and, and, and talk about a variety of things. And, and uh, we were working, before this paper, we were working on some other project, and especially about the, the best thing we did before was the work on imperfect recall in decision theory. And, uh, and it was a very nice cooperation between Michele and me. And I think that this is, uh, if, uh, if you ask me about advice to young people and students, I think that find uh, friends, find people. 
people that you can sit for hours and chat and sometimes you go from economics to politics and sometimes you gossip and sometimes you are angry about the other person but uh, the interaction somehow uh, creates something and although I was living in Israel and Kelly was in the UK in London at the time we met uh, several times to very productive periods and during these periods we developed uh, the, the paper it, it was not a one day job it was a, a long uh, a period and we revised the paper and we revised the paper and again there, there was disagreement between us about how to write it and I wanted to emphasize more the methodological and the, the comparison, the, the didactic uh, side of the paper. Michele was more reserved than me, much more reserved than me. The outcome in some sense is a compromise which is closer, much closer actually to Michele's approach, but my, my, my version appears in, the, in one of the chapters in Economic Fables um, in a way which, uh, to be honest, if I were the only author of the paper, probably I would publish or try to publish the, the chapter of the Economic Fables as a paper before publishing the, this particular paper. By the way, I, my ver this version would be even more difficult to be accepted because it was much more closer to a story, a story in the standard world, the sense of the world, than a, a model as is written these days, unfortunately, in economics. And um, I know it was a while ago, but in terms of how you worked on the results and maybe more generally with your co-authors, is it kind of like you're both trying to prove the same things at the same time or do you divide it up or how does it work in that sense? Well, you know, there are two types of collaborations. One which is not interesting collaboration is that uh, I have some idea, you have similar ideas, you wrote something, I wrote something. So now instead of fighting, then we are uh, somehow find a way to, to combine the, the papers. That's not the case here. And I and I actually, I hate this type of uh, course of ship. The course of ship, which I uh, had uh, quite a lot in my life with different people. These days it was mainly with Michael Richter, uh, but before with people like Asher Volinsky and Michael Petione and, and some other, Ayala Arad, is, is, is more through dreaming. Namely, we sit and I don't know, one of us comes uh, with ideas and we somehow develop them and talk about them. And then we send an email and saying, uh, okay, there is some properties that we have shown and the other one finds a mistake and it's on and so on. And then we, we somehow write a, a draft and then we go through the draft literally infinite number of times. And the way that uh, I'm used to go through a draft of the paper is really with the co-author reading word by word again and again and again and again. Uh, I cannot say until we are satisfied with it because I'm not satisfied, but until we fed up, we submit it. And then of course, after a while, we go back to the paper and find some mistakes that we are amazed that we did and some stupid sentences that somehow remain because either because of editing uh, mistakes or because we were not careless or whatever. Uh, that's a very long process and if the co-author, uh, it's a matter, uh, the fitness of the co-author is uh, crucial for this process. By the way, I don't believe in more than one co-author. I think that there is a big difference between collaboration of two and three and uh, three is too much for me. Two is the right uh, number. Two allows um, direct interaction and direct debate between two people. And the debate within the people is, of course, the collaborators is a, a key to the collaboration. If we fully agree and if we fully think the same, and also we also fully 
make the same mistakes. But, uh, luckily, with Michele was a wonderful uh, prof, uh, and uh, I enjoyed the collaboration with him very much. And I think each of us collaborated, and uh, we also were complementary. There was complementarity between us. I think that there are things that Michele is in some respects better than me, that I fit better to do, and something that I believe that I'm a bit better, and, uh, and that's, that's what a good collaboration should be. Now, we mentioned earlier that you're a faculty member at the University of Capes. So maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit, um, what exactly is this university? It's uh, not something that started when I was very young, because in my hometown there were very few cafes, and I did not, uh, as a student, probably I did not have the money or to sit all days in cafes. But I think that I had some sort of romantic view of economic scholar, uh, sorry, of a scholar, academic scholar, not economics necessarily, which I don't know where it came from, probably from books, probably from pictures from Europe, from the beginning of the 20th century, of uh, sitting in a cafe and uh, not chatting with people, but sitting and, and, and thinking and writing and working and uh, from time to time, of course, also interacting with the people around. I like to interact with people on the other end, I would like to work and uh, the two things together could be done in a place which we call a cafe. So I think that I had this image, but there are of course very few places over at the time, there were very few places in the world and still actually there are few places, not so many cafes in the world that allow people to sit for hours and hours and hours uh, on just uh, just on a cafe or uh, on coffee or a bite or whatever to conduct this academic uh, or does not have to be even academic it is any intellectual you know, or any thinking activity so with the time i became more and more obsessed with this romantic view i have to admit that it's also as you could probably see from the jungle paper also i'm a person that has some sort of double relationship with the academic life I'm a part of academic life, I'm paid by the academic institutions, but I, I see also the downsides of the academic institutions. And I not necessarily see myself as a part of the community. And the University of Cafes emphasizes the point that actually for doing good thinking and good writing, you don't need any institutions. You need a coffee machine and you need a table and a piece of paper and a pencil. And as I said before, the, the interaction with the world, the real world, is part of the real world. And at the same time, doing activities like writing or thinking about papers is something which personally I do much better in cafes than in my office. The office is a very bad place to, for work for me. It's a very good place to go through some, uh, to, to correct typos or to do some other technical activities, but it's not a place to think. And I find much more concentrated in a cafe, even if there is noise around, and even for, if from time to time somebody say, hi, how are you? Then in an isolated office or in a home. With time, as I said, I became quite obsessed with that. And uh, so now it's a big operation for me. <laughs> Unfortunately, these days it's, it's freezed. But the operation includes that I, I like to take photos at, uh, of cafes. The, I created uh, several uh, things. I have the atlas of cafes where uh, there are about 600 or more than 600 cafes around the world. More half of them I visited personally, and the other people recommended. And these are places, again, the coffee is not important. The level of coffee, actually, I hate coffee. These are places where um, you can sit and, and work and think. And uh, so there is the atlas that you can use. And there is also the posters that I produce, which include only photos that I took personally. And each of them includes 54 cafes around the world, uh, which uh, places that I 
strongly recommend. So I enjoy these activities and I enjoy that people from time to time send me pictures of the poster on the wall. The other day I got something like that from uh, somebody in, in New York and I was really very pleased, I must say, because I think, you know, this poster, the Cafe Poster, first of all, I'm sure that many more people looked seriously at the poster, Cafe Posters and they looked at my, a paper of mine in Econometric, no question about it. And second, uh, it's a sort of activity which is a sort of hobby, but it's a, a hobby with a message. And the message is to encourage us to interact with the world, to take ourselves in some sense less less seriously. In the in every cafe, you will find some other people that write poets or just uh, write some diaries or just interact with their friends. And probably they do things which are not much less valuable than what we do. Well, first of all, I should say if you're ever in, uh, if you're in London, I highly recommend the Royal Opera House as uh at, because it's you have so much space and you really you can just buy one coffee stay there as long as you like no one cares so cafes aside are there anywhere any other kind of locations which you found are kind of very good for work other obviously than the office which you said you don't find so helpful i am an indoor person first of all and so but the cafes also i don't like cafes outside uh, on the pavement i like cafes inside you, you, you know i think that in one paper of mine once i described the the process where i was thinking about one of the ideas of, of one of the papers that i like most and this was in bed you know it's, uh, it's uh, comfortable in bed could be also a good place to think i don't recommend cafe for everybody some of the people that i know it would be disaster if they sit in a cafe and they do very well in their office in at home or in or in the university. It is uh, something very personal and uh, it's almost a characteristic of a person and a characteristic which I believe is associated or correlated with other personal characteristics. So in closing, I want to talk a bit about uh, the state of the discipline. And in 2011, you wrote that economics has never been in a worse state. And I was wondering, uh, so what, first of all, what prompted that evaluation? And second of all, has anything changed in the last nine years? Well, first of all, I, I should say I, that when I talk about economics, I talk about economic theory. I am not in commentation and I don't know else economics, so I cannot comment anything. I, I cannot seriously about anything besides economic theory. I think what has changed in economic theory since 2011, the situation is much worse. So I think that economic theory at the moment is, is a boring field uh, with very few ideas, with a lot of new ideas, with a lot of uh, emphasize on mathematical uh, devices. Uh, it became sometimes an Olympiad or race uh, of mathematical work. I cannot judge the stuff uh, from a mathematical point of view. I am not a mathematician, but I doubt that what we do in economic theory has a lot of uh, value from a pure mathematical point of view, but still it became a sort of a race. And there are very few and there is no, uh, number one. Number two, the uh, probably more important than what I've said, and there is an attempt in economic theory by most economic theoreticians to present the work as applied, as applied and with a sort of a very strong uh, message, probably even policy recommendations, even in these days regarding the corona. I don't like this approach. I don't believe that, uh, as, as I said many times, I believe that economic theory is a, the study of concepts 
and I believe that a good model, economic model, in economic theory is like a fable, like a story. It does not need a conclusion section. It does not, it's a story. You can take from story you read of Chekhov, you can read and take from it whatever you want, and different people can take different things. It's not a true story. It's not a model that you can verify. Another disaster is that perhaps it became extremely long. They are so long that, uh, of course, nobody beside, uh, I don't know, is reading the papers. I don't believe that even if always read the 80-page papers, they are long, boring. Usually there is a small idea. I'm not saying that always, but usually there is a small idea that somehow is inflated into 80-page paper. And whenever I, I I stress authors and the speakers in seminars about it, most of the cases, they admit that actually there is a small, or not small, probably important idea that could probably be described in a three, four page but then excuse the standard excuse if I write the paper in this way. Of course, nobody it will be rejected by, by all Germans. So what can I say to a young person? You need a, you need a dissertation, you need a PhD, you need a tenure. How could I comfort him? How could I, I of course, I, I understand why he does whatever he does. So I think that these are the, the disastrous trends in current economic theory. I find econometric at the moment extremely boring journal. And I say to one student here, that publishing in Chronometrica is probably a negative signal these days from, because it means that actually this is really uh, probably a perfect technically paper, but most likely with very few uh, new ideas, the original ideas, the, the new stories. And then therefore I find the situation of economic theory very bad. And it's also very bad because I'm not talking now about myself, I'm talking about some other colleagues of mine, young colleagues that find that work more in the conceptual side and find it not easy at all to, to, to get their positions in the professions, the profession whereas other people that are very strong technically write uh, beautiful introductions about some connections with the real world, with the corona, with whatever, and find it so easy to publish. And are there, I guess there must be some sort of trends or some, some, some subfields of modern economic theory which you consider more exciting. I think that there are some people in the profession who work on conceptual issues. I think that the much work was done around models of bound rationality. Uh, not all models of bound rationality are interesting, some of them are not at all. But I think that there are some, some people that seriously were uh, trying to construct different types of models, which somehow classified in our profession as modeling bound rationality, which were very different than uh, previous models and more successfully, less successfully, uh, quite, uh, quite interesting. If I have to specify one particular area, then I would specify this one. Again, I have to, to, to admit that I was contributing also to this field, but uh, but I think that some of the young people who work on the younger people who work on this field are, are, are doing a very interesting job. Now, again, I'm not saying that there is no other work uh, that's interesting. Uh, one field that I can say that I was working a lot in my life, and I think that I am not persuaded these days that produce interesting results or interesting models is game theory which is uh, got into a period where there are very few, I think, new uh, conceptual innovations and there is a lot of uh, uh, another leaf and another leaf and another leaf on the same branch. Uh, That's the reason that I personally completely stopped working on game theory, although I spent so much time on it. And actually, uh, one of my last papers with uh, um, Michael Richter is a paper that uh, 
is um, in some sense uh, trying to argue that models of the type that uh, which are close in some sense to general equilibrium, that not general equilibrium, but close in some spirit to general equilibrium are uh, to our taste at least uh, more interesting uh, than uh, applying a Nash equilibrium to some non-cooperative games that will describe the situation. So, uh, so although I spent so much time in my life, uh, probably too much time on game theory, <laughs> I feel that uh, this is not a fit, but, uh, but uh, you, you should find the new ideas elsewhere. And by the way, that's a sort of a general, by the way, trend, uh, probably, in, probably not only in economics. When I was uh, probably in your stage, um, and I was, um, I think that uh, I was for one year postdoc in Austin, Oxford, in the place that you are there. Okay, this was in 79-80. You know, this was the the period where general equilibrium was much more uh, acceptable than game theory. And these days, uh, many of the students of economic theory uh, even know very little about general equilibrium, and they know a lot about game theory. Now. Is it a good development? I also contributed a little bit to this development. Is it a good development? Yes and no, because the, I think, and this is the trend that I would like to, to point out. One empire replaces another empire. Revolution replaces one regime. The new empire or the new revolution usually with the time becomes establishment. And it has the same or most of the same problems that the old regime had. And I think that that's what's happening these days with that there were two evolutions in some sense that in my life in uh, in economic in economic theory I uh, I witnessed. One of them is the game theory revolution, and the second is the behavioral economics revolution. And, uh, and both evolutions became moved in some sense and became uh, the same problems that the old had. Namely, it became a sort of you must do things in particular way, and we are close to other ideas. And within behavioral economics, you said. I'm talking about it's it's all about game theories. That uh, unfortunately, I think most of the people these days uh, see every every situation they immediately think about it or model it as a game, and the game is a very particular uh, set of, uh, of of models. And uh, and uh, the same is true about variable economics, uh, which is uh, there is, in my opinion, too much emphasis on particular uh, things. Variable uh, economics is not full with new theoretical ideas. The models are basically the same models that were before, but with this uh, different interpretations. That's fine, of course, but uh, but again, the new type of interpretations allows too little room for the old interpretations for future uh, different uh, uh, stories and interpretations. So my point is that, look, economists are human beings. Not only economists recognize this fact, but economists, we, including myself, is a human being. And uh, we have the, the strengths and the weaknesses. And some of the weaknesses that we smear other institutions and the politicians and, uh, and so on are too about uh, economists uh, as well. And uh, we should be aware of it, and especially as young people like yourself, you should just be, in my opinion, I advise you to be aware of that. And uh, and uh, if you change the profession one day, and I hope you will, uh, just be careful and not become the, the next establishment. Just as a final question, um, so, so obviously you've written and you've said uh, today that you're skeptical about the ability of 
economists to use some economic model to maybe tell politicians what policy should be or predict what's going to happen in the world tomorrow. And I know you've said that you're not obviously an expert on more empirical approaches, but I was wondering, do you think maybe that more recent work in empirical economics, like regression discontinuities and uh, natural experiments and so on, do you think maybe this is giving economists the ability to kind of make authoritative scientific policy recommendations, forecasts, and so on? Listen, there are two, uh, I, you know, there are things that I can say with my expertise, quote unquote, uh, and there are things that I can say as a human being. I can say something about the state of economic theory because I was working on it for so many years and I was a part of economic, I am still part of economic theory. I can say something from this thing. There are things that I cannot say because I did not do any empirical, uh, empirical work. I did a little bit experimental work because I wanted really to understand the uh, paradigm, but uh, I did not do uh, empirical work as it's done. I have the impression, and now it is an impression, it's not a statement which comes with uh, deep knowledge, uh, but my impression is that there is, uh, there is not enough that uh, scholars, academic scholars, don't know enough about real life. They are very good in techniques, they are very good, and actually you, you get the points actually most of the time for, uh, for having a new technique or uh, a new way, a clever way to, to find some, something. Often the something that you find is quite obvious, but nevertheless it's the, it's the, it's the method and the sophistication of the method which is uh, the way to evaluate you. I, I, I cannot see how somebody is sitting in his office in wherever he, he sits and just reads the New, even the New York Times or The Economist and this is enough for him to really understand the world. I think that the problems uh, that uh, politicians, I, I respect politicians. I respect politicians because they are, even without politicians, that I'm very much against them. But I think that the problems that they face are completely different than the problems that that uh, that uh, professionals, uh, professional economists or economists, academic academics face. And I have the feeling, and again, it's a feeling that there is an overpretension by people in the academic life that they, we are the clever people that can give an advice. We sit a few days, we think about, we see some data, we're analyzing our fantastic uh, methods, and here there is demonstration, there is an advice. We've seen in the corona crisis, some of those people, advice was, you don't need to be economist or, uh, or academic to say that they are completely stupid advices. And luckily, they were not adopted. And I give a lot of respect to those people that, that make the decisions. Overall, at the end, I can write a paper and recommend something, and then I can say this is theoretical. They have to decide about life and about really important things. Uh, and uh, this is completely different. I would be very, very shy and modest in what I can conclude from uh, this, the, the, the academic work in economics, even if it's with big data, and even if, and even if. But this again, it's my impression, and it's also some bias, my personal biases, that I, I, I believe that economists are, are human beings, and the incentives are, of course, they want to help the world, and they want to save the world, and so on. I'm sure that they, many of them want very, very much, 
but they've also their interests and and I don't see why you know in our models when we if we would uh, model a politician we put a politician and uh, you know most uh, political uh, uh, economics models uh, uh, put the interest of the uh, the politician inside the model and I don't see exactly why the interest of the economists are not part of the of the model that we create. My guest today has been Ariel Rubinstein. Ariel, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure.